The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Open up with me to Exodus chapter 11. I'm told you're going through the book of Exodus. Uh, If I'm wrong, don't correct me. That's just embarrassing. So just go along with it. Uh, uh, We preached through in our church the book of Exodus uh, uh, several years ago. In fact, I think we, we got to the section on the tabernacle just as we were being forced to meet outside uh, under awnings and tents at that time, so which was a bit strange. So uh, Tab asked me to revisit this sermon, kind of where you are uh, in Exodus chapter 11. It's always a bit humbling to revisit old sermons for a preacher, but uh, uh, I, this text is, is something that is truly glorious, as all texts are. Exodus chapter 11 here, as you move through this book, and you've moved through most recently the plagues, in the book of Exodus and taking place in Egypt as the Lord prepares to bring his people out of Egypt, we come to a text here which can be a bit hard for us. Now, biblical texts can be hard for a number of different reasons. Some texts can be difficult just to understand, whether it be because of the language that is used or cultural realities that we're trying to come to terms with. Other texts, and I would submit to you Exodus 11 is one of these, but other texts are difficult not because they're necessarily hard to follow or challenging in terms of the words that are written, but they're hard in the terms that that can be hard for us to accept, for us to come to terms with. Maybe they even challenge some of the assumptions we've made about God or perhaps ourselves even have created about God. Exodus chapter 11 overall is a pretty straightforward narrative and prediction of the, the final plague to come. But the truths here that are mentioned are, can be a bit challenging for us. But let's read together. I'll read for us from Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the, the entire chapter, I'll read it for us. A, a very, fairly brief chapter, especially in, in terms of Exodus. And a chapter that, uh, that foretells what is to come in the final plague in Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go 
out of his land. Lord, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I think sometimes we, it's good to ask ourselves basic questions as Christians. And maybe a good question sometimes for us to ask, and especially in light of this text, is do we really want God to be glorified? Now, I think as Christians, our knee-jerk reaction, our knee-jerk answer is, of course, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Of course, I want God to be glorified. But then we need to ask some questions, especially as we read the ways in which God is bringing glory to himself in this portion of Exodus. Do we want God to act in such a way that brings praise and honor and attention to him no matter what? Oftentimes, I think what we mean when we say that we want God to glorify himself is that we want God to glorify himself the way we think he should glorify himself. Lord, glorify yourself by giving me the job I want, by healing and reconciling a relationship that may be broken, by giving me the money to pay the bills at the end of the month, by helping me to raise my children so that they never depart from the way of the Lord. We want the Lord to glorify himself in those ways, and we should pray for that, of course. But here as we come to the book of Exodus, and in this portion of Exodus, and really what you've been seeing in the book of Exodus so far, we see that God is bringing glory to himself, but he does this through some means and through some things that we may not like very much. The book of Exodus and the plague sometimes force us and confront us with the question of, do we really want God to bring glory to his name? It's important for us to remember that all of these plagues, and probably as you've seen, that all of these plagues are judging and bringing judgment upon Egypt, but they're also bringing revelation about God and who he is. So through the plagues, we, you've been learning about who God is and what he is like. And one of the key truths of the Bible as a whole is that our God is a God who is committed to bringing glory to himself. He is jealous for his own glory. As Isaiah 48, 11 says, the Lord says there, my glory I will not give to another. See, if God is God, if he is the perfect, holy, righteous God of the Bible, which he is, then it is good and right for God to seek his own glory. If he were to do otherwise, he would cease to be God of Scripture. The Bible says that God is jealous for his holy name, as Ezekiel 39 says. So the question when it gets to these plagues and to the, pro to the prophecy of this plague individually here, that if God is a God who glorifies himself, then, then how does he do this? How does he do this specifically in Exodus chapter 11? What about the, what is written in Exodus chapter 11 does God do and how does he bring glory to his name through what is written here? And I want to see three ways in which God brings glory to himself in these verses in Exodus 11. God glorifies himself, number one, through death and judgment. God glorifies himself, number two, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then finally, number three, God brings glory to himself through giving his people favor in the eyes of Egypt. If you're one of those avid note takers, don't worry, we'll, we'll list each of those points and and I won't be checking your work afterwards. Maybe Pastor Tab will, I don't know. But 
Let's go through each of these as we go. Now, you might have noticed just in reading these or saying these, that many of these, at least two out of three of these, are ways in which God brings glory to himself, which maybe are not the ways we often think of God bringing glory to himself, and yet it's exactly what he does here. So let's start with number one, where we see that God glorifies himself in death and judgment. You see this especially in verses four through eight of our text in Exodus chapter 11. Four through eight, of course, speaks of the upcoming 10th plague that's announced that's going to occur against Pharaoh and against all of Egypt. And I think it's, it's an understatement to say this plague is quite a doozy. The plague does, of course, doesn't actually arrive until chapter 12. I'm, I'm sure you'll get there eventually. Well, even once it happens in chapter 12, the focus will tend to be more on the Passover of, of Israel and the Lord passing over Israel there. But he, so here we get a lot of the details of what to expect when this happens. You might notice that this plague, which predicts and foretells the death of the firstborn, all of the firstborn in Egypt, notice how all-encompassing it is. It's the firstborn of Pharaoh, of course, and that, that we can go, okay, Pharaoh, he's the bad guy in the text. So, But then it talks about the firstborn, even all the way down to the, the lowest in stature in society. And just in case we weren't quite clear on that, it even throws in even the firstborn of all the cattle is going to be killed. Even the firstborn of the cattle. It is a quite a hard plague to even read about, to even think about, to even fathom. I hope you can see here even the that it's given and prophesied and the, the sense of dread that could have come along with this. It's said that it's going to happen. We're not told exactly when, but it's going to happen at midnight. The day itself is not necessarily given yet, but think of the dread that must have been. Imagine being a parent with children in the house and every night at midnight wondering, has it happened yet? Then one night at midnight, the house is quieter than it was before. I mean, that is, it is a dread-inducing judgment. Now, it's also important to keep in mind, this is a judgment that is targeted and direct. You may remember back in chapter 4, verse 22, we see here that this is a judgment against the firstborn in Egypt. But that's not the first time we've heard about or read about the firstborn. In fact, Israel is often referred to as God's firstborn. In the early days of the book of Exodus, he did that. Egypt has been violently persecuting the Lord's firstborn, his children Israel. And now the Lord is going to strike at the firstborn of Egypt. He's going to strike at the head of families and the head of the country, even the head of an empire. We also read here in verse 6, that it's foretold, which we can understand why, that there's going to be a great cry of which there has never been heard before. Again, this wording is not new either. It's a cry of agony and sorrow, but it's the same wording that was used for the cries Israel was raising up to God all the way back in Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3 as well. Israel was crying out to God and the Lord heard their cries. Now, God is going to visit these cries of agony upon Egypt. Now, it's hard to say, and even hard to think, but it is the reality that you can't help but read this text, and we are confronted with the fact that here is God 
who acts and he kills in judgment. Even children. Now, not all, of, not, all the first, not all the firstborn in Egypt, of course, were children, but some were for certain. How could God do such a thing? And one of the things we see here in this text is that precisely, it is precisely because God is God that he can do such a thing. It'll tell us in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord there says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He executes judgment, and you probably have seen this if you've gone through the plagues, that these are plagues and judgments against Israel, against the, or excuse me, against Pharaoh and against Egypt and the very gods of Egypt. And God is going to execute this judgment, he says in Exodus 12, verse 12, because he is the Lord. He will not share his glory with another. His people will not be persecuted forever. He will act and he will judge and he will bring death and destruction for the salvation of his people. You know, it's always helpful, I think, to look at these texts in the larger context of Scripture and it's hard, I know, sometimes we read through this text in Israel and, and in Exodus, and we think, this is difficult, this is challenging, and then we realize it's not actually all that unique. If we have a tough time with this text, we're going to have a really tough time by the time you get to the book of Revelation, for example. Now, it is important to understand this type of judgment, this is God's prerogative and only God's prerogative. In fact, that's one of the things for us as Christians that, that actually is given to us over and over again in the Bible to free us to love even our enemies because we trust that God is a God who will deal justly with all wickedness. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. See, this judgment against evil doing and against sin it is part of God delivering his people. Verse seven shows us, as you talk about how quickly it goes from the judgment of, of, of Egypt's firstborn to verse seven, talking about Israel being brought out of the land. And it, and it speaks in kind of strange ways to us, at least, where he says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Like, well, what, is, what does that mean? Why, is, why all of a sudden is the author talking about dogs? Well, I think we, we can all relate to that. And You've probably walked through your neighborhood. I know there's a house in my neighborhood, just a few up from mine, whenever I go on a run or a jog or a walk. I know as soon as I walk by that fence, the dog behind that fence is gonna go crazy. It's the dog that's gonna bark, that's gonna growl. I'm sure you probably have a similar house in your neighborhood. Maybe you are that house in your neighborhood. I don't know. And here the Lord says that Israel's gonna be brought out of Egypt and not even a dog is gonna growl on the other side of the fence going to be brought out straight away without any opposition. In fact, even says just the opposite. Eventually, Egypt is going to start begging Israel to leave. See, we see that a day will come that's prophesied here and it's going to happen very quickly in the book of Exodus when the Lord is going to bring judgment on Egypt, but it'll be a deliverance upon his people. Now, just as we stop here a minute briefly and just remember that today is also coming for us as Christians. Indeed, I would say is actually now here as God continues to deliver his people. And God has delivered us not by taking the firstborn of Egypt, but by giving his own son, Jesus Christ. 
I mean, we all know John 3.16, don't we? Who God has given his only son that we might not perish in our sins. It's always important to read these passages in context of the whole Bible and the storyline of Scripture. God is going to bring the ultimate deliverance and salvation to his people by giving his own son. You see, we see the same type of thing. It's one of the realities we see in the New Testament. You even see it in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, there is constant praise to God. And one of the constant themes of, God, of praise to God in the book of Revelation is praise and thanksgiving for God's justice and judgment. You know, the book of Revelation, often say it, it's a bit like a musical. I don't know if that, some of you probably hate musicals, some of you probably love them. But you might notice as you read through the book of Revelation, it's, there's a whole text of prophecy, and then every so often it stops and there's a song. It's probably the things that you either love about musicals or drives you crazy about musicals, that, depending on your perspective. But that's what happens in the book of Revelation. There are these constant refrain of songs, often from either angels or the saints in heaven themselves, that kind of chime in to interpret the prophecies and orient our hearts to what's been said. And one of the most common themes in these songs is praise and even pleading for God's justice and judgment. And this is an important truth for us because oftentimes understanding this truth and coming to terms with it, that God brings glory to himself through death and judgment, depending on whether or not we come to terms with that, it can really make the difference between whether or not we actually look forward to heaven. You know, I was, uh, it can be one of the questions we often ask ourselves and, and maybe we're even embarrassed to ask it, but how can, I, how can I enjoy heaven? How can I enjoy the new creation one day and yet be aware of my loved ones that are lost. It seems to be like those two things can't go together. And it makes a certain amount of human sense to us. You know, I was in Bogota, Colombia a few weeks ago, visiting with some, uh, not for anything nefarious, just uh, for visiting with some pastor friends of mine. I... <laughs> Visiting with some colleagues from seminary, we meet up once a year for encouragement, and one of them is a pastor in, in Bogota. But, you know, I, one, I was there without my wife, and, you know, normally when I like to travel with my wife, and, you know, so I couldn't help myself as I walked around Bogota and walked around Colombia and saw different things that I would often keep thinking, you know, oh, my wife would really like this, or my wife would enjoy this. Ooh, I wish she could see this. It just came naturally. And we oftentimes think, you know, a little bit that, is that what heaven's going to be like? But a million times worse. Heaven sounds great, but won't always lingering in the back of our minds, won't we be grieved by those who are not there? That's why we need to see and come to terms with these doctrines of, like this one, of that God brings glory to himself. And one of the ways he does that is through judgment. See, when we get to heaven, when we get to the new creation, when the Lord brings us there to the true heavenly promised land, it is true, there will be no more tears or sorrow. You will not be grieving your lost loved ones. And then we may think, well, maybe God just gives us some sort of spiritual amnesia. He just wipes our memory, and so we just don't even remember people anymore. That doesn't seem to be what we see in Revelation, especially as we see the, the saints in heaven in Revelation often praying and asking, how long? 
knowing that there is still judgment to come. Now, there's going to always be some mystery involved when it comes to trying to conceive of the reality of the new creation. But all I can say is that in the Lord's presence, we will be so amazed by his glory, so overwhelmed with his justice and righteousness, that our, and our understanding will be so much clearer than it is now, that it will be only joy and praise and worship for these realities, not sorrow. And not even forgetfulness, because we will be praising God for these things. Now, right now, we grieve. And it is appropriate that we do so, that we have grief over those who are lost. The Apostle Paul did just that. Paul modeled this wonderfully where he, he grieved over his Jewish neighbors. But this is a grief that is only temporary. And when God's perfect justice is executed, we will only be responding in joyous praise, not sorrow and regret. Because God is glorified in saving his people. And God is glorified in judging sin and rebellion. It's not just one or the other. And if Revelation has anything to teach us, I know we always have a lot of questions about Revelation, but one of the things that is so clear and crystal clear in Revelation is that we will worship the Lord and his kingdom for his judgments against sin, amongst other things. And that is one of the most consistent messages of the plagues, and especially highlighted here in Exodus chapter 11, that God does not just bring glory to himself through delivering Israel, but in bringing death and judgment upon Egypt. But that's not all we see here. We also see, number two, that God glorifies himself in hardening Pharaoh's heart. Another tough one for us to read about, but not necessarily the first time we've seen it in the book of Exodus. This has been mentioned and continues to be mentioned all throughout this, these plague narratives of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, even of Pharaoh sometimes hardening his own heart. Just back in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, it was mentioned there. But here we see, again, another hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We see finally kind of this one more hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Moses, we read here, verses 8 and 9 and 10, Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence in anger. And the Lord tells Moses in verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I mean, there's an encouragement, isn't there? <laughs> How many pastors want to go into the pulpit? How many Bible study leaders want to go into a room? And having just been told, they're not going to listen to you. And that's, yeah, that's what's told to Moses. Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then verse 10, we read that Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. Once you notice in verse 9 why the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, we're told there, so that the Lord's wonders will be multiplied. Again, another way of saying that the Lord would bring glory to himself. It's a similar type of thing that was mentioned back in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, where the Lord says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, talking to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Here's Pharaoh who's exalting himself. And the Lord tells Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this whole purpose. Even as I hardened you, as you hardened yourself, 
All you're doing is serving to bring further glory to my name. You see, the Lord could have done things a lot differently in this section here, in this all of these chapters. The Lord could have just said, Israel, we're out of here. Whoop, teleport you to the promised land. No plagues, no wandering through the wilderness, none of it, just teleportation. The Lord had that ability. The Lord can deliver his people decisively and with one decisive act. He does that in other places in scripture and in the Old Testament. But instead, God intentionally and purposely goes through this series of plagues with Pharaoh's heart being hardened over and over, culminating in finally this last and tenth plague. Why would God do such a thing? Why not just get Israel out of there? While there's still some mystery there, we know the basic answer. God tells us he does it this way, and he does this thing in this way for his glory. There's a few truths that may be helpful for us to keep in mind as we see this. And, and one of the things the Lord does, one of the ways he glorifies himself in the book of Exodus, even with all of its mystery, is that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, one thing we should say about this is, number one, is that, you know, it shouldn't surprise us in the Bible that the Lord is sovereign over man's heart. We, we pray like this all the time. Every time we pray for the Lord to change someone's heart, to soften their heart, to bring them to Christ, to, to, to bring them into greater accordance with God's word, Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I mean, this is Proverbs 21 can virtually be a commentary on what's going on here in Exodus with Pharaoh. It is right and just for God to control the hearts of man. Doesn't mean it's not mysterious. There's some 19 or 20 different times in this narrative of Exodus that, that this language is used of Pharaoh in his heart. And at least 10 of those times, the Lord is the one explicitly doing the hardening. These verses are then picked up. These are, they're not just left here. They're picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 9 as well, where Exodus chapter 9 is commented on in Romans chapter 9. And Paul makes that point very clear. Again, the whole argument, what's the whole argument of the book of Romans? Well, one of the main arguments of the book of Romans is, is God right and just? In a number of ways it's made. It starts by, you know, how can God declare sinners who are not just or right? How can he declare them right? Well, that's through the work of Christ. But that question also comes up in Romans chapter 9, where Paul makes the case that God is right and just as he hardens whom he hardens and has mercy on whom he has mercy. Romans 9, 17 through 18, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Then Paul chimes in here. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's making the case the Lord is righteous in doing this. He's allowed to do it. Now, second point we want to make about this is that Pharaoh, very clearly in Exodus, is still accountable to God. Exodus 9, 15 and 17, right after the Lord tells Pharaoh that he's raised him up for this purpose, the Lord right away says to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is still exalting himself over God. Of the 19 to 20 times where it talks about Pharaoh's hardening, there's at least three or four, to the, three or four of these where we're told that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh did what he wanted in these texts. Sometimes we, we think that Pharaoh is like some puppet. You know, I remember when I was a 
a little boy who grew up amongst several other brothers, which meant that we took an especial amount of joy persecuting one another and pestering one another. And one of the things we would often do, sounds ridiculous now, but you know, maybe I'd be sitting behind my little brother in the car and I'd reach around, I'd grab his hands and I'd start hitting himself in the face. I'd say, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. And he'd be like, I'm not hitting myself. You're making me hit myself. We sometimes conceive of that that maybe is what's going on here with Pharaoh. It's important to understand that that is not what's happening here. Pharaoh, it's not as if Pharaoh is saying, God, I'm not hitting myself, God. I'm not hitting myself. Pharaoh is doing what he wants, even as God hardens his heart. Now, I understand these two realities in the Bible, they often are mysterious in how they fit together. Man's accountability and God's absolute sovereignty. That's why you read Romans 9 and sometimes you get to the end of the chapter 9 and you think, finally, Paul's going to give me an explanation that's going to answer all of my philosophical questions. And Paul says, uh, God's the potter, we're the clay. There's our philosophical answer. But there's a third reality to keep in mind as we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Not only is Pharaoh still accountable, not only is God sovereign over man's hearts, but we also see that it is the Lord's people who benefit from this. In chapter in 9, verse 16, Pharaoh was raised up to proclaim the Lord in all the earth, to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We are the beneficiaries of the gospel of God's glory and of his salvation going to the ends of the earth. When Paul speaks of this in Romans 9, he, he puts Israel in place of Pharaoh. Because Paul sees that Israel, by and large, their heart has been hardened against the Lord. Just as Pharaoh's was. But Paul is also making that case in Romans 9 that it is the Gentiles, the nations, who are the beneficiaries of God's sovereignty, which is why it's important to remember that when you read Romans 9, what comes next? Romans 10. It's not a trick question. (laughs) Where we're told that the Lord sends people out, that people need to hear the gospel. How will they hear unless there are people who are sent? How will they hear without preachers? Paul can't stop talking about God's sovereignty and even the mystery of that before right away going into the fact that this is done for the benefit of the Lord's people and the salvation he brings to the ends of the earth. At the end of the day, this needs to lead us simply to humility. But sometimes why we don't like Romans 9, because I don't really want to be equated with a lump of clay. That doesn't seem all that flattering of me. But Paul, he's so great in Romans 9 because Paul anticipates all these objections we have. Romans 9, 19 through 20, Paul there says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, that's the exact question we have as we read of Pharaoh, isn't it? Why does God still hold Pharaoh accountable? And what does Paul say? We think finally, Paul's about to answer this question we have. And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? There's our great answer. Paul answers us the way we all sometimes as parents have to answer our young children. You know, it's it's happened. I remember my children were growing up and especially if they didn't want to go to bed and they always find a reason to come out of their room again. I'm thirsty. I got to go to the bathroom. I'm scared on and on and on. And oftentimes what comes with that, I say, you know, time to go back to bed. You need to sleep. Well, why? Because you're tired. Well, why? 
because you've been awake all day. Well, why? Finally, even as parents, we've all reached that point where eventually we have to say, you know, go to bed. I'm the parent and you're the child. You see, that's what Paul's answer is, is similar along the lines of Romans 9. We go, why, 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 why? And Paul says, he's the potter, we're the clay. It's not ultimately about us, but about God's glory. I mean, we may not like that sometimes, or there may be a part of us that bristles against that, but because we want it to be about us, don't we? Now, I know this stuff can be controversial, but it's, it's right here in the Bible. We don't want to avoid it. We don't want to skip over it. But there's a third and final way in which the Lord brings glory to himself here in these verses, is that God glorifies himself in giving his people favor with the Egyptians. Just in case you thought I had skipped those verses, go back to verses 1 through 3 in Exodus 11. And these verses there, it's highlighted both that the Egyptians are going to release Israel. In fact, even really kind of beg them to leave. Verse 2 says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And then verse 3 says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. As God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, as God is bringing these plagues upon Egypt, he is also in the process of giving his people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. We see, this do, we see the Lord do this. That is one other way in which the Lord brings glory to himself. Sometimes he brings glory to himself through the hardening of hearts. He also brings glory to himself through the Lord's people finding favor in the eyes of others. We see that with Joseph back in Genesis, where Joseph found favor in the eyes of the prison keepers in Genesis 39. Psalm 106, verse 46 reads, says there, kind of commenting on this text, that he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive, commenting on what happens here in Exodus. It's God who caused them to be pitied by Egypt. See, it's important for us to keep in mind that for us as Christians, as we reach out to others, as we speak the gospel to others, as we encourage others, as we seek to let our good works shine before others so that they might glorify the God in heaven, as we do these things, we are going to sometimes encounter hard hearts. You don't have to do it very long before we realize that's part of the reality, isn't it? That's why there's something so encouraging in Exodus chapter 11 here. Because while we should pray for and want and people's hearts to be softened, for us to find favor with them, even as we encounter hard hearts, one thing we don't have to worry about is that God is not bringing glory to himself. God knows how to bring glory to himself through hearts that are softened and hearts that are hardened. So while we may pray for and long for hearts to be softened, we never have to worry that God is not busy bringing glory and honor to his name, regardless of the state of people's hearts. And so we can go and preach the gospel liberally. By that, I mean freely, without distinction, we see God here is bringing glory to himself. And now, of course, you know, we, we, we keep saying we want God to bring glory to himself. And often what we mean is, as we've mentioned, I want God to glorify himself in, a, in the way that's easiest for me or in a way that makes perfect intellectual sense to me. And yet, 
We see here that the Lord, what's happening here in Exodus 11, that we see the Lord bringing death and judgment. We see the Lord hardening Pharaoh's hearts. And we see the Lord giving Israel favor in the eyes of Egypt. And the common denominator in all of these things is that God is bringing glory to his name. Notice the the favor, the depth of the favor that Israel is going to find with, with, with Egypt. He says, before you go, ask them to give you riches. <laughs> now, maybe I'm just lazy, but there's a part of me that reads that and thinks, let's just not tempt fate. If we're getting released, let's just go. Let's not stop and ask our neighbors to give us a bunch of riches. And the Lord says, do it. As you go, stop and ask your neighbors for gold and silver, and they're going to give it to you. You're going to find as you read on in Exodus that those exact riches are going to be used in the building of the tabernacle also the formation of the golden calf, but that's a story for another day. So we see here, there's something gravely encouraging here for us as Christians. That in these same few verses, the Lord hardens a king's heart and gives Israel favor in the eyes of the nation. And God is busy bringing glory to his name. Now we may sometimes not like certain of these things, and there may be things that are hard for us and mysterious for us, and I understand that. We are, after all, we are creatures. God is the creator. We may not be able to make perfect intellectual sense of all of these things, but what we can do as Christians and should do as Christians is come to terms with the fact that the Lord is bringing glory to his name, and we can go and reach out to others, love one another, encourage one another, reach out to the unbelievers in our midst, in our midst of our callings in life. And we pray for their hearts to be softened, but even if we face ever-hardening hearts, we trust and rest in the fact that God brings glory to his name. We pray as the psalmist prays in Psalm 115, verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you, the God of Scripture, the triune God of Scripture, bring glory to your name. Lord, we confess that as creatures, as clay, we often are coming to terms with mystery and the ways in which you bring glory to yourself. But Lord, as we see these truths, may we not just immediately jump to the negative, but may we instead see them for what they are, a great encouragement for us to go forth love one another, encourage one another, preach to one another, and be confident in the fact that you will bring glory to your name, regardless of how the world responds to us. We thank you that you are the God who will not share your glory with another. And so may we too pray, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, be the glory. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.